Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we're talking about Top Gun Maverick. Mm. The sequel to a film that's, God, getting on for 40 years old. Top Gun came out in 1986. I saw it when it came out. I still haven't seen it because I, I was kind of thinking this would have a re-release of Top Gun around it when you know the sequel came out. And I think maybe it would have had it come out when it was supposed to, but COVID kind of got in the way. So mm. that never happened and I haven't got around to seeing the original. It's directed by Joseph Kaczynski, and this is actually not his first time directing a sequel to a film that's decades old. He did Tron Legacy. Yes. And Tron was 30 years old, roughly, yes. at the time. And Tron Legacy was seriously stylish. It was wonderful. I thought yeah. it was... It, I mean, it wasn't a success, but I thought it was a real filmmaker's film. Yeah, it was visually dazzling. Yeah. You know, and he did things with images and sounds that really kind of lingered with me. It also had a great soundtrack by yeah. Daft Punk. Amazing sound. Um, but unfortunately, it did have an absolute charisma vacuum at its centre in uh, Garrett Hedlund. Mm. Um, this does not. Yes. Um, this has obviously Tom Cruise with his winning smile. And it also has Miles Teller playing the son of Goose, who was lost in Top Gun. And this is explained as much as you need in this film for those of you who haven't seen the original like me. Mm. Um, I thought this was pretty stylish too. When we saw the trailers, and we've been seeing a lot of them mm. in recent months, um, I have thought to myself, this looks kind of small. Like All the trailers were about these these dogfights that they were doing in training at the Top Gun Academy, sort of, you know, best of the best thing. And Tom Cruise is kind of showing off and like pushing these kids to their limit. He's the instructor now. Um, and also the kind of that the, there were scenes or shots of scenes that were just in kind of um, like the canteen or some office that they're chatting and talk whatever. And I thought this could, looks kind of small, like it's I don't know that it felt like the frame wasn't full of people or something like that. Do you know what I mean? They felt mm. like a thinness. I think that is true of the film. But, I, don't, I don't feel that. But I still loved it. I mean, I had a mm. fantastic time. I still somehow think that's true though. That it's a film that feels kind of compressed. It's a film that shoots in one direction and doesn't have much room for these side plots and things. It's just really the one with the Jennifer Connelly character that's any that's of any significance. It takes you out of that room. Well, no, I, I, I don't agree with that. Yeah. Um, and this is maybe where the sequel comes in because, in fact, it's wrapping up all kinds of, you know, other. it has all other kinds of strands. Mm. You know, it has the thing with, uh, with Goose. It has the thing with, the, with Goose's wife and her death and promises. You know, and it has the thing with uh, Iceman and the Val Kilmer character. It is kind of very elegantly calling on the previous film. Mm. Yeah, both in terms of those narrative strands that I'm I'm talking about, but also visually, right? So, you know, the shot of Kelly McKillis in the motorcycle, you know, you now see Jennifer Connelly, and it's just an image. Mm. You know, the shot of him in his whites... It's just an image, but it harks back, mm. right? It's kind of, it's minimal, but it's enough to kind of jog your memory, mm. yeah? And it's enough to kind of involve this particular narrative, yeah, into something, the previous one, but in a way that doesn't put off people who haven't seen the film. Mm. Um, so I didn't think it was, I mean, I thought it was thin intellectually, <laughs> you well, know? Yeah. Uh it is this rah-rah American exceptionalism. It is about, you know, the grit and, you know, individualism and discipline of one person overcoming 
kind of everything. Which is fundamentally stupid because the thing about the well, the navy, but the army, and navy, and all the military is you go there and you follow the rules. If you don't follow rules, people get hurt, and you you know your your commander is you do everything he says and so on. It's like Full Metal Jacket, you know. Mm. And here it's like. No, no, no! You're the best of the best. You get to think for yourself. You get to break the rules, and when mm. you do, there's no consequences and all mm. of this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I must say, I think this is exceptional filmmaking. It looks amazing. I was moved by it, and so on. Right. So, you know, I don't want to put it down. I think that it's quite extraordinary. We were talking before about, you know, the guarantee of a Tom Cruise film mm. is that it'll be beautifully produced. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The man has standards. Yeah, the best of everything. You know, they're like the cinematography is superb, the supporting cast. Mm. You couldn't ask for better. And this has all of that and it's very well done, right? And it's kind of like a bit of a thrill to see actually. Yeah. But on the other hand, I mean there were moments where I just groaned aloud, right? Like plenty. Yeah, so many. Um, a lot of them are those lines where it's like a line has been set up earlier in the film something about believe in yourself for instance it's not that but mm. say it's that and then later on in the film the character who had that said to them says it to the person who said it to them mm. you know so Tom Cruise says something to Miles Teller then later on he says it back and it's like oh there's that line Are you, it got turned back on you mm. and it's a bit chummy and it's that thing that happens and it happens a lot here I did think early on I'm going to hate this because it was super obsessed with referring back to its mm. predecessor to the point where it actually used old footage of it at one point. He's the yes. bit where he's playing uh, the piano, um, and he's kind of reminded of of, uh, of Goose's well, of Goose because it's because yeah. it's Goose's um, son. Who, father, right? Yeah. So I mean, Ro- even the names. <sighs> yeah. So <laughs> Rooster, Rooster's the son, played by Miles Teller. Oh. Goose is the dad, and when Rooster's playing the piano, it's the same song that Goose played way back when, and he, and you see the footage of it and think, God, it's not going to do that very much, is it? And mm. it doesn't after that, thankfully. I mean, let's let's clear the decks here because I think we're missing the the main point. Which to me, this is a massively successful film. It's it a is. massively successful piece of filmmaking, right? And I think that has to be acknowledged. That you know, it looks fantastic. You know, the characters work. I mean, I was touched by it. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole kind of father son uh, thing. Jennifer Connelly as the as the girlfriend is incredibly good. They match up incredibly well. Tom Cruise is pretty dazzling, actually. You know, he gives another, I think, you know, incredibly charismatic star turn. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, he's incredibly watchable. And I think some people are, you know, like John Hamm in a film is the best that I've seen him since Mad Men. Yeah? He's always in these movies and he's never quite right. There's always something that, for me, doesn't work with him. I know what you mean. Uh, And here he's great, you know. The production is extraordinary. You know, the direction in formal terms is superb. You know, the for the fight scenes are exciting, I think. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, so all of those things work. What, what, what remains kind of fundamentally to me wrong with it is it's emotionally manipulative in really stupid ways, like this thing that you were referring to you know, earlier, this repetition of the lines, right? Mm, yeah. Uh, I think it's like, it's banal. And of course, the whole ideological project of the whole thing, which I think is why it's so fantastically popular, you know, is that it kind of reaffirms American exceptionalism. 
you know. So there's a line in which one of the characters says, well, we no longer have a technological advantage. So what advantage do they have? Well, it's one of character. Yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> of being American, right? So, you know. Although it's tempered insofar as they don't ever point out who the enemy is. <clears throat> They're bombing this uranium enrichment sort of base thing, which is, you know, just like it's the MacGuffin that they have to get to and drop mm. the bombs on. Um, I don't think at any point they say, oh, it's the Russians or the Iraqis or whoever the hell. Mm. It's just a uranium thing we need to get rid of. So mm. they're kind of, they're slightly hedging their bets as to like, because beforehand they would have no problem saying it's the Russians. We're in mm. the Cold War, you know, we've got to mm. fight the evil enemies. Yes, I think it's important, you know, in terms of marketing to not name the enemy. Um, something that, you know, I just want to point out before I forget, well, two main things, actually, that that both bother me, really. So one, which is part of the success of the film, is the treatment of this whole macho one-upmanship, right? Mm. Uh, as a kind of standard, collegial, fun, yeah, it's what every man does. Yeah, and I I found that, like, you know, obnoxious and, uh, you know, maybe just because I'm a gay man, but I find it, like, yeah, obnoxious and also alienating, right? Like, if that's the way that kind of men behave with men, kind of leave them to it. But, mm. you know, kind of, I don't see it as attractive as the film does, right? Yeah. Are you uh, thinking largely of the Hangman character? Who's the one who's... I think of the Hangman character, the way that they're introduced... Yeah, it all feels like a fight, a com- competition, aggression. Sure. I mean, those are just things that on a personal level really do not appeal to me, right? Um, the film, 36 years later, is interesting because there's women, yeah, which I don't remember from the first uh, version. I don't remember women pilots. I think they were all men. Meg sure. Ryan was Goose's wife, uh, and Kelly McGillis was... I mean, she was a, a training officer, I think, actually, to Kelly McGillis was. Uh, but here we have one girl. Who's a pilot, yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, He's one of the best. Yes. And you also see kind of more black people and Latinos and so on than I remember from the first. The other thing, well, several things, actually. So, so let me just list them before I forget. Mm-hmm. So one thing that caught my eye is, of course, the famous volleyball scene, right? Mm-hmm. You know, which is, like, uh, in the first... Uh, film uh, is very homoerotic and so on. In this one, it was very interesting because, of course, Tom Cruise looks fantastic, but he's old. Mm. You know, he's 60, right? So, I don't know if you noticed, but most of the shots were shot against the sun, right? So that a lot of their bodies are in shadows or in silhouettes or... Right. Yeah, or he's filmed in the back. I think there's a couple of shots where you see his chest... Right, and the price of really not seeing Tom Cruise's body is that you also don't get to see the other people's except brief flashes, right? So you have all these young, gorgeous actors, right, whose job really is to get their tits out in this scene, mm. right, and who are not quite allowed to do it because you want to preserve the star's vanity. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. I felt that. I mean, I did feel that you were you weren't seeing them in the way that you know it wasn't having that homoerotic effect. No. Um, but I felt it was more about the speed of the editing of it. that you, It never lingered on a character's body. Or, or, you know, they weren't glistening with sweat. Yes, and they weren't in slow motion. Yeah. But of course, the, the reason why yeah. is to preserve the vanity of the star. Yeah. yeah, because if you do that with Tom Cruise's 60-year-old body, 
Yes. And of course, he leaves the game early and goes and puts on a T-shirt. And exactly, right? <laughs> so that really caught my eye because it's a very clever way of, well, mm. of, of making the star function within that, but actually at the price of yeah. audience pleasure in those bodies. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. The other thing that I kind of just want to draw attention to is the presence of Val Kilmer, mm-hmm. right? which to me relates to Tom Cruise because obviously Val Kilmer in that role in the 86 film, you know, he was really poised for stardom. And in fact, he starred in quite a few films. Yes, he was Batman. Yeah, and I thought he as Jim Morrison in the Doors, the Oliver Stone Doors film, you know, I mean, I swooned. I thought he was the sexiest thing ever really in that film. So basically kind of the film in a way is also asking you to compare, yeah, mm-hmm. Cruz and Kilmer. And of course, I think Kilmer has had personal health problems, right? Um, yeah, that, that limit his vocal ability. Limit his vocal ability, you know, and he's very good and so on. Uh, and I really appreciated seeing him. But when you have those two in, yeah, yeah. together, you can't help but compare them. Yeah. And of course, that underlines, yeah, kind of Cruz's stardom in a way well stardom and kind of physical condition i mean it's a comparison of the two people's physical condition val kilmer is very limited not just in that he can barely speak and a kind of an excuse is given to him to not speak we're Mm. essentially told not in this many words he's had throat cancer which i think may have been val kilmer's actual i think medical condition but i'm not sure um and he does whisper a few lines uh, later in that scene but it's also that he he, he barely moves mm. facially. He 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 can't really. Yeah. Um, and he's not really asked to. And like all the acting in that scene, quote unquote, acting is given to Tom Cruise to do, and he has yes. most of the lines and so on. Yes. But Val Kilmer is important there. Um, and they do. They actually have a nice, you know, the the button on that scene where he asks who was the best pilot, and they leave it on a funny note. It's really nice actually. Mm. Um, but yeah, it is about it. It it is a thing that underlines like Tom Cruise is famous for doing his own stunts um, and, you know, being in the helicopter in Mission Possible and I'm sure he's in the, the, uh, the plane here flying it himself and all that stuff, breaking his leg in the one Mission Impossible mm. film a couple of years ago. Um, he's, he's famous for keeping on doing that and it does kind of... I don't think it's right to say that it's unfair. It's just the way it is that Val Kilmer has, you know, physically gone in a different direction. Yes. Um, but it highlights it yes right uh and you know kind of in a way i was very happy to see uh the val kilmer character um but my god you know cruise is terrific yeah yeah like uh uh you know it makes me think that he and julia roberts (laughs) you know to me are the stars of the era yeah of like Mm. you know the last 20 30 years because you know, they literally light up a film. Like, the, the their smile literally lights up a film, yeah? Kind of, you know, they smile and, like, the film seems to, you know, just get yeah. better or something. Like, you know, it adds a spark or something. You know, which is kind of, you know, quite extraordinary. So, you know, I'm not convinced of him, by him, you know, as a great actor. Um, but he's definitely the greatest star of the last 40 years. You know, and of particular significance in the sense that he is the most zeitgeisty star, right? So a lot of debates around American culture have been argued around his films, 
Yeah, like, you know, from the 80s, Risky Business and Born on the Fourth of July and, you know, and this one. And, yeah, kind of, you know, it's, 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 I mean, the films are successes, you know, because, uh, well, they're very well produced. Um, but also, yeah, because his persona kind of, you know, brings particular types of debates or kind of issues into kind of public fora. You know, and I think he's done it again with this one, right? Like, mm. I mean, you know, who would have expected the sequel to a film that's like 30 odd years old, you know, mm. would become the biggest hit? Yeah. Oh, well. Well, it's his biggest hit. We were just looking, I just saw a website that had the stats on it's made some $290 million domestically, which is his biggest domestic hit ever. And as you said, um, I think that's not adjusted for inflation. Um, it, but that's, but, but his second. Unadjusted. His second was War of the Worlds in two thousand and five, which was two hundred and forty-ish. Mm. Um, but also, what I was thinking, if for the sake of argument, we can say that this film is not a franchise, yeah. Mm. I mean, you know, the original Top Gun was so long ago; it's not like a Marvel film or something like that. Yeah, right? it's hard to think of it. Yeah. yeah. So, if just for the sake of argument, we we think that it's not a franchise, it's like the biggest hit of the last ten years. That's not. A franchise that's not a Jurassic Park or a Marvel <laughs> film, or yeah, I mean, I can't think of another film, yeah, that's kind of been this kind of a success, uh, without yeah, being tied to you know, I don't know, I would be, yeah, I'll, I'll so it's not some... Star Wars, it's not Jurassic Park, it's not Marvel. Mm -hmm. I mean, try to think of like some other film that's kind of grossed. You know, those figures. Uh, let me have a... Yeah, I'm just looking at high, like highest grossing films in the last 10 years. 10 so. years, yeah. Because, yeah, we've, we've got... Anything of the Disney, 2010s put. Yeah, yeah, so that's what I'm looking at. Look, 2010s in film, so this is not included in the last couple of years, but... And exclude, all, exclude Pixar. Yeah, it's all Endgame. It, uh, it's all Avengers, Star Wars, Jurassic Park, Lion King, which, you know, Disney remake. Mm. Um, Frozen mm. uh, was original, but, you know, again, big Disney thing. Um, Harry Potter's in there. Uh, uh, Fast and Furious films are in there. Um, the Minions films are in there. Um, uh, James Bond's in there. Mm. Um, the Dark Knight Rises, which is still yeah. franchisey. Transformers. Uh, Joker, which is on the edge of a franchise. It's still yes. still, still Batman. Um, Pirates of the Caribbean. Seriously, uh, Alice in Wonderland, Disney... Yeah, see? Hobbit. I'm getting into the 40s here. Um, Jumanji, which is a sequel to an old film mm. that's maybe Top Gun-ish. Um, that might be the closest that you get. But the, 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 the one that is cle most clearly not related to a franchise or that mm. kind of thing, Bohemian Rhapsody, which is 46 in this list of the 2010s and made $900 million mm. worldwide. That's 46 in the list. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there you go. So anyway, there's just something interesting about that, right? And I think it does have to do with Tom Cruise. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. He pulls you. He pulls the film to in a way that and most most other people can't. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, I'm glad that the film. I think I sort of said kind of got tempered, and one of the things that got tempered as well is the American pro-Americanness. Like I think you're right about still. It's ultimately about you, the Americans are the people mm. who can pull off this mission and so mm. on. But early on, when um, you're being the, the Top Gun Academy is being introduced, 
and they have the giant fucking American flag just in this hangar for no reason. It's just there to show off to the camera. You're thinking, oh, Jesus Christ. You know, and Tom Cruise is framed in front of it just so. Um, you're thinking, Jesus. That does get tempered down. So even though the film is still coated with American flags here and there, and the kind of um, the kind of trappings of the the military, like you have the the military funeral for Iceman mm. when he dies, and it has yeah it has all of that solemnity that's conveyed with yes and the know, wings twenty one gun the... salutes and all that. My God, um, <laughs> it, it is mostly it is mostly kind of tempers, which is something I appreciate. I think maybe that maybe that partially goes to to that um, marketing you talk about with you know we're not going to we're not going to talk about who who the enemy is here. And we're going to slightly dampen the rah rahness. Yes, which um, might just have to do with the recognition that, you know, because at one point these films would have been made primarily for an American audience and then they would sell whatever they could around the world. Mm. Whereas now there is very much a recognition that it's a global market, that it has to appeal, mm. you know, to Europeans and to the Chinese or whatever, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, so, so it might not be that they're tempering it because they want to temper this raw rawness. It might just be, you know, we've got yeah. to look after the customer. Make um, sure we don't alienate the customer. Mm, yeah. I, I I also want to point out that, you know how sometimes, you know, I talk about a film and I say, oh, there wasn't an interesting image in it. This is the opposite. I mean, you know, the film was full of, like, images that kind of caught my eye. Sometimes, like, you know, really minimal ones, just the way that, like, uh, Tom Cruise's face was framed, you know, inside the light of the airplane at night, mm. right? And it just looked graphically, like, superb, you know? Yeah. Um, the the scene that you're describing, you know, with the American flag in the background, mm. and then you cut into a close-up, and in fact, you just see the red bars, right? Yeah, yeah. And that creates such an interesting kind of image, right? Um, so the film is full of images like that, actually. Yeah. Um, so it's, I think it's a real filmmaker's film. Yeah. yeah. Um, the the fight scenes looking unbelievable. Mm. They're stunning, um, and that be that you know the training scenes or where they're actually engaging in the mission, um, and then you know leads to dog fights and so on. Um, they're incredible, and there are all sorts of bits of all sorts of bits of design within the scene that, like for instance, um, they they get out of this valley where the mission takes place and in trying to escape then they get spotted which mm. they knew that was going to happen and a dogfight ensues as they try to escape um and so you've got these planes chasing them down and they're releasing chaff to mm. defend themselves from the missiles that are being mm. launched at them and then of course miles taylor runs out of chaff and so what's going to happen and tom cruise sacrifices himself it's part of this father-son story mm. i'm trying to be the father that he never had and he doesn't mm. appreciate me and so on um, but it's wonderful because it they, it makes it into the fight scene in such a great way that he flies in between them, releases his chaff, and then gets shot down himself. Mm. But he saved Miles Teller. It's great, and it's a re and it, and it works perfectly. You understand immediately what's happening. I mean, yeah. there's no point in it, despite the fact that all these planes all look the same. Um, even, especially in the training scenes where they're trying to shoot down like Tom Cruise and he's in the same plane as the rest of them. You're never confused about anything at all. That's one of the, the amazing brilliant. things in the film, you know, because actually it's very exciting, um, but the geography of the action is always absolutely clear. You, you absolutely know where everything is going, right? Mm. Um, and also, you talked about the quickness of the editing in the volleyball scene, mm. right? But that's almost never repeated in the rest of the film. You feel that kind of things are cut to a point. 
Yeah. Well, they have a rhythm. Yeah. And and things are allowed to feel weighty. Like there's a great shot in or great scene, great great sequence in Taken Three, I think it is, which is very well known. It kind of does the rounds online because it's a, a sequence of um, Liam Neeson jumping a fence, I think. But it's done with like 15 cuts in in about a second and a half. Mm. All of him from different angles getting over this fence. It's so stupid. It's so overdone. Mm. It's like completely opposite. Things are allowed to have weight, mm. time on screen. You understand. You know, it, it's that partially has that thing of um, every shot has a piece of information to convey to you, mm-hmm. which is important. Like, I mean, if you see a shot of a plane, there's a plane in the background that you understand they're in relationship or shot mm. from in the cockpit or shot, shot even that's of the pilot's face, which mm. you would think is showing you nothing really other than maybe their emotion. But no, there's a plane in the background or it's where they're looking. You know, yeah. They're always showing you something and the everything's in relation to something else geographically. Mm. The, the, the film's produced, amongst its main producers, is Christopher McQuarrie, who um, is the guy who is like now in charge of Mission Impossible and has been for several years, mm. director of those. So I think like that's probably had an influence. But that's not to take it away from, from the director of this. Was his name Kaczynski? Kosminski? Uh, um, his name... Is Joseph Kaczynski? Yeah, it's not taken away from him because because the action scenes in um, Tron Legacy were actually probably the best bits of that film. I also really liked Oblivion. I haven't seen that, uh, and I thought that that actually was a weightier film. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yes, I think it's around the time wasn't Will Smith also doing After Earth, which was where he got like super serious about sci-fi. Yes, no. <laughs> but uh, I didn't see After Earth. No. Um, so this is 2013. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was an incredible film because, you know, again, so much of it just focuses on Tom Cruise, really. Um, <laughs> the other thing I want to mention, um, and it may seem small, but I, th- I thought it's quite funny, is, you know, you come to this film with no knowledge of Top Gun, like I do, basically. Mm-hmm. And you go, fine, it's, it is what it is, and I'll enjoy this. Um, but it turns out that your knowledge of Star Wars uh, really comes in handy because the whole mission is a Star Wars, it's a Death Star trench run, which itself, like I say, to be fair, was essentially robbed from the Dam Busters. So, you know, everything has its precedent. Um, but this even has a bit where, so the idea is that they you fly through this trench below the radar and then you get into the big valley where the target is in the ground. And the first one of you hits the target and the second one who's flying behind you um, now shoots into the open hole created by the target and blows the whole thing up. And it really is that thing of you've got to fly to the end of this trench, dodging all the fire, and then you shoot into the, the waste ejector, mm. whatever thing it was, and then you blow the Death Star. Um, and you're thinking, okay, well, yeah, I've seen it before, and whatever, it's fine, I like it. But this even has a moment where... Because um, you, you've, <laughs> you've got Tom Cruise flying the first leg of the mission, and Miles Taylor flying the second behind him. He's going to do the, the, the killer shot. And he's flying very slowly. He can't keep up. And there's something just there's something in him that's not. He's not doing it. He can't. He can't put the throttle down. Exactly right. right. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he basically has like an Obi Wan Kenobi moment. You know, he's like Obi Wan Kenobi speaks to him. Where Tom Cruise, I don't think he can hear him on the comms. Maybe he can, but he's like Tom Cruise is basically saying, "Do it, let go, and all this." And <laughs> it's like literally right. <laughs> it has that. And then uh... and then when he gets into the into that valley and the target's been opened for him, the guy on his wing who um, is supposed to laser target the thing, his laser goes a haywire. So he has to do it by eye, which is, you know, and that's again from Star Wars, he puts the targeting machine away and just does it by the force. (laughs) (laughs) Except Rooster doesn't have the force. No, well, he he has all American, you know, sort of, and he has his dad, Tom Cruise, willing him on. Yes. 
So it's and and the thing is, then the film goes on to have this dogfight, which is you know not from Star Wars. I'm not saying it's like just pinching everything from Star Wars, but it was very funny to see those things essentially kind of adapted here. Mm. Like they really do show up. Mm. Anyway, I was I was you know I liked it a lot more than I thought I did, in spite of my irritations and reservations. I do think it's an amazing piece of filmmaking, except you know. You then think, well, it's an you know formally it's an exceptional piece of filmmaking, <laughs> but to what end? Yeah. Well, it, yes, it's in service of make America great again. <laughs> that's its project, really. Yeah, uh, and in that way, it's very dodgy. Well, in uh, that in that sense, I mean, they have this thing. It, it, it is a weird thing. They have this thing about the number of um, American pilots who have multiple kills in the air who shot down another plane, and it's like three planes. It's not like they have like the Red Baron, mm. but it's like. You get to the end of the film, and the one guy, that um, that that cocky guy mm. who ends up saving the day for them all at the end, has his second kill in the air, and they're like, "That's pretty good." And then they go, "Tom Cruise has got five now," yes. and that makes him an ace. And you're like, "Are we still, are we still, um, you know, celebrating this?" It's weird. Like, <laughs> it's weird to just go. By the way, you've murdered five people. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's loose. Uh, no, it's Glenn Powell. Glenn yeah. Powell. He's the, the, the very sexy Glenn Powell. Yeah. Uh, so he's the one. I, wa- I wanted to finally say that you you are really, really having a different experience to what you thought you'd have. I, yes. I think that's really, okay. really true because you're saying all these people are saying it's re- a really good film online, all your friends. Mm. And you're going, how can it possibly be? Yes. But you found out that you essentially agree with them, right? Yes. I mean, I think, um, well, I think I have more reservations than they do. Mm-hmm. I do. It did work on me emotionally, but I did feel manipulated you know, yeah. into it. I have more reservations. So when I was watching it, I was mostly with it. There were moments mm. where, you know, I groaned. Yeah, there were moments that took me out of the film mm-hmm. and you're you're conscious of the mechanics of manipulation and also, you know, the um the the, the stupid tropes of the genre, yeah, mm-hmm. the repetition of dialogue and We've been through, you know, yeah. the macho-ness and all of that stuff. Mm. So so I mean, I'm not an unreserved admirer, though I was surprised at how much better it was than I thought it would be. I'm interested that you were moved at all, because I, I wasn't moved, um, although I suppose I could see how it was trying to, particularly at the end when they're all hugging. And, yes. Um, but I never felt moved. I never felt close to it. I was surprised, actually, at how much I bought into the father-son history story. You know, yes. and, and Tom Cruise, I think, as you say, it's hard to make a case for him as a great actor, Maybe that's the case, and he's more of a star than an actor. Mm. But, um, but he's a great he's, star. He's extraordinarily empathetic in yeah, this. He is. And when he's kind of struggling to connect with the kids, and he feels guilty for what happened to his dad and his part and all that, it's it's writ on his face, and he's very very good. I mean, you the thing so the distinction that I'm trying to make here between a star and an actor is that you know, in a way, Tom Cruise is great because you actually understand and and feel everything he's trying to communicate. Mm -hmm. You know, the reason why he's not a great actor is that it's never subtle or it's never contradictory, (laughs) right? Like, it's never a complex thing. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, you know, he's communicating everything clearly and he's making you feel empathy for his character, right? Like, you're always, or I am always charmed by him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, kind of, you know, the way that he smiles and the way that he looks and you know, kind of, he is very charming, right? So the combination of charm and of being able to really convey 
anything, mm -hmm. you know, kind of that is an extraordinary thing. Now, you know, that you never feel the, the, the complexities or the contradictions or, yeah, that it's, you know, there's always a certainty about who he is and how he is, mm -hmm. even when he's being vulnerable. Yeah, that I think is what, you know, uh, uh, what the problem is, because great actors do that. Yeah. Mm. I remember first him first being spoken of in Taps, you know, and then Coppola's The Outsiders, where he played a supporting role. Risky Business was his first breakout big hit. Huge, yeah. Yeah, and that was 1983. Yeah. So actually, that is what, 40 years? 83, yeah, getting on for it. Yeah. yeah. So, you 39. know, he will be beginning his fifth decade as a star next year. It's incredible. Um, yeah. I don't think, you know, when you think of the really great Hollywood stars, but, you know, when you think of like a Clark Gable, you know, who became a star in the early 30s, right? But he died in the early 60s, so that's 30 years, mm -hmm. right? Um I mean, Gary Cooper, the same thing, didn't make it past 60. Other people like James Stewart, you know, uh, who became a star later, like let's say, I don't know, 36, 37, 38, something like that. Well, by 1968, he was still a star, but he wasn't a box office star, mm. right? So this idea of somebody, you know, or, or even somebody like Betty Davis or whatever, you know, or even Catherine Hepburn. Uh, Catherine Hepburn might be the exception because... She was a star in 32, and she could still get a film made in the early 70s. But could she? I mean, she was doing television, you know. Uh, uh, um, she was doing Tennessee Williams uh, for television in the mid-70s. And, you know, that thing with Laurence Olivier and George Cukor in the mid-70s. So presumably she couldn't get a, a film, a theatrical film made, mm. you know, by the mid-70s. So... I think, well, the only thing I'm trying to say is that it's an exceptionally yeah. long career as a <coughs> box office star. Yeah, he's still getting top dollar. He still has the power to green light films. And 40 years after he became a star, this is one of the big hits of the year. It's really quite extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well done, Tom Cruise. <laughs> we must all become Scientologists. <laughs> all right. Uh, so let's wrap this up. Do you have any last words? Yes. Hail Zenu. <laughs> well on that note thank you very much for listening we're eavesdropping at the movies and we are on apple podcasts audible google podcasts spotify soundcloud and youtube on social media we're on facebook and twitter at eavesdrop movies and the website is eavesdropping at the movies.com thank you very much bye bye <laughs>